0: Because my big passion was about the fact that a lot of these artisans were sort of quite elderly and the younger children weren't that interested. So I wanted to figure out what I could do to help sustain and promote these crafts, essentially.
1: Welcome to In Conscious Conversation with me, Janice Summer. This is a podcast about small brands with a big vision and the journey of how they get there. We believe in celebrating brands that allow us to live our values. Beyond the greenwashing and curated feeds, we'll be diving deep into what these brands really stand for, what makes them tick, and what keeps them up at night. Come join us on the ride. welcome to the very first episode that I've ever recorded with the wonderful Kate of the Columbia Collective. Thank you so much for being here, Kate. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for asking. You're the first one. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) So I would love for you to tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, and about how the idea of the Columbia
0: Collective came about. I would love to. So I'm Kate, and I've been working on the Columbia Collective now for, I think it's now been officially a year and a half, and probably two years since the birth of the idea, um, so to speak. And the whole thing started when I moved to Columbia. And the reason I moved to Columbia was because I wrote a love letter, pretty much, to the mayor of Bogota. Um, I was working as an architect in London, as an sort of urban designer architect consultant, uh, which I loved, but I really wanted to go and explore um, cities that had a lot of urban design to be done, which London doesn't have quite so much. And I read a book called Happy Cities. Um, where the first chapter is called The Mayor of Happy, and um, it was all about Enrique Peñalota, uh who was the Mayor of Bogota at the time. And I, sort of course, had a few glasses of red wine and wrote him this email with my CV attached and sent it to a friend um, who had some connections in Colombia. Then, eight months later, I got an email uh, through saying, Hey, Kate, apparently you want to come work for me <laughs> from the Mayor of Bogota eventually quit my job and got on a plane after a few interviews to go and work in the mayor's office in Bogota which was incredible I didn't speak Spanish Um, I did tell them that before Mm -hmm. I did learn it eventually but uh, it was an incredible terrifying um, very very challenging experience and in Colombia they have 28 bank holidays a year there are more Mondays off than on I think (laughs) <laughs> so on my bank holidays i was always traveling mm-hmm. and a friend in the uk uh, a friend of my parents asked me if i could find some placements that no one had ever seen before i asked all my friends and no one had ever seen them or heard of them and then eventually i found a friend who worked for the government in the Ministry of culture so he knew a lot about the artisans.
1: But so the friend of your parents knew that they were from Colombia and they were from a tribe that was somewhere in Colombia.
0: She'd seen them in a shop in the States, I think. Oh, okay. They were from either Panama or Colombia. There was a whole collection of products I was on the hunt for. Um, But eventually I got in touch with this lovely lady called Elisa. Um, When I say I got in touch, I think I sent her a WhatsApp and she replied about four weeks later. (laughs) (laughs) and sort of said yes I've got them and I think we went back and forth for about two or three months with just no communication and I just couldn't figure out what was going on I basically I'd asked her to send me a sample assuming that this would all function just as everything did in Bogota and in the UK where you ask someone for something and they just do it anyway eventually I realized it was never going to happen so I asked Elisa if I could go and visit her um okay And she said yes. And it was a very awkward conversation. But she was like, yeah, if you really want to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I got on a a flight to Barranquilla and landed at night and got the bus all the way to this tiny little town called Usiakuri. And pretty much arrived, called Dilsa about 10 times and she didn't answer. So I was like, right, I've got I've just got to this town with my backpack and I have no idea where I'm going. And I walked into a shop and asked someone, I was like, does anyone know where Adilsa lives? And they were like, yeah, of course we do. (laughs) Amazing. Someone chucked me on their motorbike and took me to this lovely lady's house who I thought was so scary on the phone. And I met her in person. She literally waltzed me into her house. There were like kids and chickens and turtles everywhere. Wow, Um, And I stayed there for like two or three days and I just went and I chatted and I learned everything. And I have never, I came away being like, how, firstly, how on earth had none of my friends, my Colombian friends, ever heard of this town? And in this town as well, every single person in this town makes these placemats and various other things. But every single person in the town works, knows how to do this type of weaving okay
1: and so it was that exact style of weaving of the placemat that your parents friends had found in the shop in america no?
0: yes and it's the the design is a super traditional design that goes like a very long time wow and it's the that specific placemat which we now sell is now actually in one of our top sellers and people are always blown away by the design yeah, it's beautiful and if you go to this town there are like six-year-old girls that can make them <laughs> um they think it's the most simple thing in the world and we all think I mean I thought it was just so beautiful so and
1: it's made out of dry- dried grasses or what is it woven from
0: so it's made from this palm called iraqa palm um which used to grow everywhere around this town and now it doesn't grow so much they actually bring it in from the department below called Boulevard, where the Araka palm grows really tall, and the farmers grow it essentially to shade the crops. So it's a waste. It's a waste product. Ah! Oh, amazing. Okay. Um, And then it's chopped down and sent to the to the weavers, which is great. And then dried in the sun, in these beautiful sort of giant fans. It's almost like an elephant's fan, all over the streets. It's amazing. You can walk around, and they're everywhere. Wow and then they are cut down to size and stripped and they always choose the best ones mm-hmm. and then dyed as well in these cauldrons over fires where they it's amazing they have these powders and it's sort of it's I'm, it, I'm sure this is for anyone who knows about dyeing this is probably very standard but i thought it was incredible that you know red powder to make the red color it, it's a blue powder and then you put it in and it turns red amazing you can essentially ask them for any colour, and they can use their primary colours to to make it, normally.
1: That's incredible. And the dyes are from
0: natural materials that
1: are found around there.
0: No, so not anymore. they They were previously, but that's sort of something that the government no. has been working with them on in Colombia is mm-hmm. when they were using natural dyes, they just couldn't create the colours that they can now. And so I think about ten, fifteen years ago. The government did a sort of design laboratory with the artisans, which is something they do quite a lot. And they taught them how to use um, chemical dyes.
1: I guess that's one of those typical examples of the trade-off between sustainability and growth, in a way. It's
0: basically opened them up to new colours. But what is something is it has meant that the technique of using natural dyes is pretty much not known anymore. Right because this is something that's happened across quite a lot of the artisan groups that we work with the 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 ladies that weave the hammocks they also they still do use natural dyes but you pay three times the price for natural dyes
1: oh right I see well then let's take it back actually to where we were before just talking about how you got started so you ended up staying at this lady's place for a couple of days learning everything about the weaving techniques yes so your mission initially was really just to find these placemats and buy a couple to bring back to your parents' friends. And then how did that grow into what we're talking about now? I mean, that's quite a big step.
0: I think I I went, I got back to Bogota and I I loved it. And I kept speaking to this friend, Manuel, who had given me the number in the first place of this lady.
1: Okay, that was the one who was working in the Department of Culture. Okay. Yes,
0: exactly. And I just went down this rabbit hole of researching the artisan, the Colombian artisan, and all the work they do. And the more you ask people, the more you, you find out. And suddenly, you know, someone introduced me to this person who knew everything about the artisanias, who then introduced me to this person, and it just became this obsessive hobby. Amazing. And then on weekends, I'd go and visit a new, different tribe. Okay, I just was, was fascinated by it because it's just, I think what Everyone there found bizarre was how fascinated I was by it because <laughs> I come from England and in England we don't have, out there it's, it's completely nuclear. So one of the techniques, for example, Kanya Fletcher, which is a black and white um, fibre that they, they weave with, which is all natural dyes, no one in the whole country other than the Zenu tribe weave in that technique. And that... That happens across all the different techniques. There's no one else in the country who does that technique other than that one town or that one tribe. Wow. And it's such a huge part of their identity and their culture. That I think that's what really blew me away was how much of, of a story. It wasn't just some carpenter that, that was happened to live in one town. It was like you went to a town full of all these magical carpenters. <laughs> And only they knew how to do this one technique. You know? Incredible. Because it wasn't something I'd seen before. It was it was nothing I'd ever seen in Europe before. That's, I think, why I found it so amazing. And then the more I showed that to my Colombian friends, the more enthusiastic they were to help me find out more, essentially. So
1: essentially, when you started going and visiting them, they were producing mainly for their own use. No. Or were they... Set- yeah, I
0: mean, they, 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 as I say, the climbing government has been working with the artisan groups for quite a while now to promote the, the craftsmanship and, and to sustain the craftsmanship as well. Mm-hmm. And so they, they sell to a lot of, if, if you go into to Cartagena, if you go around Bogota, there are a lot of artesania shops.
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing those when I
0: yeah. <laughs> In in September, I then quit quit working at the mayor's office because I decided I really wanted to try and do something with this. So
1: that's a really big step, a really huge decision to make to quit your stable job and just take the plunge.
0: Well, I, I had a lot of encouragement. Um, I had a lot of encouragement from people and I, it was just the more research I did, the more I could see that I just wanted to basically help these amazing people who I'd met to just Sell some stuff to England, and they they love the idea of being sold in in England or in these other countries, and they it, it kind of it's it's a real honor for them to essentially become a worldwide artisan. <laughs> yeah,
1: and I mean to spread that skill, which it's I mean it's amazing to hear also just the work that the Colombian government is doing with them to maintain those skills and then to bring it to a wider audience is such a valuable thing to do no matter where it's being sold to but so you basically decided to quit and do this full-time and did you have savings that you were I got a job teaching
0: English part-time and that paid that paid my bills um and I was only doing sort of six to eight hours a week and that was enough for me to get by Um, I mean cost of living is very low out there So that covered my rent and I lived in a, you know, relatively affordable area.
1: Okay. And then you just kind of started um, getting different products from different tribes that you were visiting. Did you kind of, did you go with the products that they were making anyway? Or did you kind of discuss together to co-create a specific product that you thought maybe your clients would like to buy?
0: I mean, I basically spent from September to January not doing very much. Essentially, trying to figure out how to not be how to, how to do this company in the best possible way, mm-hmm. and be the foreign girl that turns up and buys stuff and sells it for a profit and disappears. Was mm-hmm. that's a really hard question because. I had people encouraging me to do just that but it just it didn't feel right and I love design and I love doing that but even then going and designing with these communities that have these traditional designs that are are very much part of their identity is that also something wrong to do To, to turn up and be like oh I'm Western and I know this is better.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so I, I just spent ages trying to figure that out and sort of started getting there. But then in February, I decided to just go on a really big trip around the north of Columbia, which is where a lot of the artisans that I had kind of met were, with a lovely friend of mine, Javier, mm-hmm. he is a videographer and a photographer. So I did exactly what you're doing <laughs> with the artisans. And I just went around and I had these questions and it was like, I had I remember I had a list of questions it was like what does your craft mean to you and then I was like what uh like what do you think you guys need to sustain this these artisans were sort of quite elderly and the younger children weren't that interested so I wanted to figure out what I could do to help sustain and promote these crafts essentially but I didn't know the answer to that so I wanted them to tell me <laughs> they just all say it's it's not a job it's it's just it's they're like my hands always have to be doing something and I want to be doing this. And even if no one was paying me to do it, I'd be doing it. Oh, that's beautiful. But then I would go into the, you know, the town square and I'd chat to some of the kids who all also um have in, for example, where the first place I went, the government has organised that they have classes at school in that particular type of weaving. And they're all like oh, it's really boring. And they're like, I want to be a lawyer in Barranquilla. Or like, I want to be a model in Cartagena. Of course. I'm like, no, don't you want to be like your grandmother? And then you can kind of understand why they say no.
1: (laughs) Of course. At the same time, it's such a natural, young person way to think. That it's such a tension in a way, I guess, between, yeah, yeah, following those. I
0: noticed that, that they're like incredibly proud people. With you know, total right, and the majority of the companies that I could see who abroad were selling their work weren't really crediting the people who made the products, right? And the connection I kind of made I don't really know when it was on the trip or afterwards but was that all these kids they will have Instagram, you know, they will have you know, mobile phones and they see pictures of Taylor Swift and all that sort of thing. I had this dream that these kids would be opening their Instagram and seeing this incredible exhibition in London and they'd be seeing pictures of their grandmother in this incredible place. And then suddenly they'd be like, oh, no, no, actually, I do want to do that. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, that's in a way it's kind of creating or bringing back that sense of pride in... In one's heritage and in one's craft and to modernize it in a way
0: you know alongside that it's it's making sure that they're being paid correctly um making sure and that's that's also something that we try and work with the artisans with because the artisans set their price and sometimes they don't actually get it right sometimes they put it too high and sometimes they put it too low so sometimes they put it too high so that we physically can't sell it you know there's there's a certain if you're paying a thousand pounds for a placemat it's probably not going to sell very many Um, (laughs) (laughs) and then sometimes they put it too low so that they're always chasing their own tail with their bills and they're not making a profit and so we've had it a few times where some of the artist have put it too low and I've realized and so we've kind of looked at what their costs and their time and everything is to increase it and I'm pretty sure now all the people we're working with well, I mean, quite a few of them have built extensions on their house. <laughs> okay, I think they're doing okay.
1: <laughs> well, that's really great. That must be very rewarding for you as well to see that there really is an impact that you can see when you go with your own eyes. So
0: nice, and it's why I really want to go back out now. Oh, um, let's hope, let's hope you can soon. But I mean, what we were trying to do from the outset was to try and sustain and promote these crafts through um crediting the artisans and empowering them and also working on designs but i tend to say that we curate rather than design so it's more mm-hmm. of let's make it a dark blue instead of a light pink so i try and be as unobtrusive as possible but just making it a little bit more winter friendly yeah. i guess Because the bright pink looks beautiful on the beach in Cartagena, but sometimes in November in England, (laughs) it might not work. Um, But it's definitely, I mean, I speak to all of them every single day and they're amazing and they're so hardworking and so enthusiastic. I'm very jealous.
1: So basically then in terms of your business, the way that you run it over here, you get all of your orders from all of the different tribes get them sent to you in the uk and then where do you sell you sell online in your own channel then you also have some stockists right
0: yes so at the moment because of everything going on with the wonderful covid um it's pretty much all online um and previously we wanted to do pop-ups because pop-ups were such a great way to engage with the customer to have these beautiful pictures of the artisans yeah to really tell those stories exactly um that that was the main aim and I really hope we can do that again and I would love to be doing that again and I think for me running a business on my side I, I think that's a very rewarding part of it is to see people's reactions to the to the work and to the stories rather than just receiving an email saying you've got an order <laughs> absolutely it's not quite the same and then in terms of wholesalers wholesalers is quite a tricky one because we we, we do have some amazing wholesalers at the moment who are wonderful but a, a huge part of what I do day to day is being incredibly patient and I'll always work to the artisan's time frames for example one of our lead artisans was in hospital for the last two weeks she's fine now but she was completely out of action for two weeks and we had these huge orders waiting to come through and i'm never gonna chase that person and and push them and so luckily the people we work with so far are amazing and super patient and they if things are delayed then they're really understanding about that and it's also quantities these pieces are all made by hand there's only ever going to be so many that can be made and it can grow steadily for example if these kids do decide that they all want to be weavers which would be amazing then surely but surely there will be more people weaving especially when there's opportunity and there's demand yeah but it is finite um and so wholesales are kind of we're, we're like very delicately stepping dipping toes into wholesale right
1: but you just don't want to have pressure to fulfill a large minimum order that you might not be able to but
0: we also don't want to lose the magic and the uniqueness of what the pieces have absolutely and as soon as you start sort of mass producing things for, for both sides I mean for the artisans they love doing new designs um, We've just brought out some new placemat designs which was probably the first actual drawing design that I, I did with some of the artisans And they get so excited. They love it. And and it's because they're also learning. They're all so keen to learn. That's wonderful. I did a rubbish sketch and they did all the work making the structure. But if if we just had one product and we just kept ordering hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the same product over and over again, it would probably be pretty discouraging for them as well. Mm -hmm.
1: Of course. Yeah. Especially because it is such a, you know, the people who are sitting there and creating these things. And if there's so much lifeblood and soul going into it I think it's something that you can even feel when you see and handle such a product when there is heart in it and I think that's something that people are really appreciative of once they understand
0: the stories I'm just remembering one of the quotes from one of the interviews she's like my my hands tell a story I thought that was so beautiful like she's like when she. Even her hands are telling the story
1: and i was like oh. that is so wonderful because you can picture it and so i mean now looking back what do you think would have made your life easier if you'd known like if there is is there a specific thing that you wish you'd known before you got started i mean i'm sure there are a million lessons learned along the way
0: I mean, like literally, every single day is a lesson in something. Um, At the moment, I'm learning the beauty of Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) I've been been, we've we've had a sort of three or four big orders with one artisan kind of coming through slowly but surely. So the three or four orders have slightly got mixed up together. Chaotic and mad, and neither of us can remember what we've got and what we haven't got oh and so I was like all right okay I'm gonna do this excel spreadsheet <laughs> so we've been sitting there together and so I sent her this spreadsheet and she's like okay I'm gonna print it out and I'm gonna do this so but you know next next time we do that I'll have done the excel spreadsheet before I place the order yeah um, and then you can and keep track of it just exactly and I'll, I'll, I'll send happens. it to her and she'll print it out and have it on her wall and we can take it off together whereas At the moment, we've both kind of been relying on the other one to (laughs) to be keeping stock. (laughs) It's actually quite funny. But uh, I think, yeah, organisation and I I mean, I don't know. I mean, even in
1: terms of because you basically started this business on your own, right? Mm. Would you would you have preferred to like, have you found it hard, lonely sometimes or have you been quite happy? to? Okay
0: definitely found it lonely but i would not change that for the world okay um say prior to probably where we are now i have tried to work with some people before mm-hmm. um i've tried to partner up with some people before and it hasn't really worked because they haven't been the right people and what it's meant is that it it could have been a compromise on what i wanted to achieve on like a kind of ethical level okay in terms of maintaining so for example i someone who's much more interested in making a profit yeah whereas I was much more interested in like doing it the correct way Mm -hmm. um so when you if you partner with someone who doesn't have the same vision as you you end up compromising and so I'm really glad that I it sounds very self-centered or whatever but I haven't had to compromise Mm
1: -hmm. um I mean that makes sense because the 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 decision of the compromise is based on your values and on the meaning that you want your business to have. So that's basically mm. essential to the core of the mission to to keep it that way.
0: Exactly. But now now I I have um a lovely person working with me a few days a week and it is life changing. Um having someone to bounce things off mm-hmm. is incredible. Um so that's incredible. That's great now. And actually yeah, it's it's great not to make some decisions as well. <laughs> but um, I but I, yeah, I think it's kind of taking ownership of it is one thing, and then working with other people is is kind of a separate thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but it's 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 difficult. It's difficult day to day, but then in the in the long run, it's worth it. I think.
1: Oh, I bet. And what was the proudest moment so far? I'm guessing. There were many, even having your first orders uh, fulfilled or having your first customers tell you how much they loved everything, including myself, if I may say
0: so. Okay, so I think there's two separate ones. I think the first one was the pop-up that we had last November that you came to. Um, (laughs) Yeah. That was an incredible moment because that was almost like the unveiling. Mm -hmm. Um, We we had had a very small private pop-up sample sale in in July but that was when I was still figuring out what what we were doing yeah November was sort of showing the world and I remember there was there was a family that came to came to the pop-up on Sunday morning or something they had like a six or seven year old daughter and they were upstairs in the gallery which is where we had just or we didn't have any products we just had the photographs of the artisans Blown up, huge, and the little story underneath of how they work and the story of the tribes.
1: Yeah, the photos were stunning. They just brought kind of as a visitor, they just brought you right into. Audience. But
0: they like I remember listening from downstairs, and I could hear the parents talking their daughter through the whole exhibition. I mean, they went from oh. things that thing. the daughter was loving, and she's like, "Oh, so that's the person who does." It. I was like, "This is incredible." It's- um, and then another thing that has happened a couple of times, very few, but one or two times, um, is when I get Colombian customers um, in London. I had one recently, a lovely Colombian lady who I haven't met, but she emailed me a few times and bought so much stuff and sent me the loveliest email saying how much she loved everything. And I always think when you get the approval of a Colombian, yeah, it's sort of like, oh! Because it's not my country, it's their country, and I'm yeah, in some ways I'm representing their country, yeah, um, so that's always a real honor when I get the sign of approval from someone,
1: oh, that's absolutely amazing, that must be so fulfilling to to just have somebody confirm that what you're doing is meaningful and real, and then it's even somebody from whose country products are coming.
0: Especially as they could so easily tell me that I'm the worst person in the world <laughs> and how dare yeah. I. <laughs> amazing
1: so <laughs> I would say for now we've gotten a really amazing overview now I just wanted to ask you um if you have somebody else uh, other sustainable entrepreneur or brand that you really admire that you would like to maybe draw our listeners attention to and then also maybe a recommendation for a favorite book or a podcast or a blog or anything that you like to refer to to keep you inspired
0: i mean my my book has to be it's got nothing to do with sustainability but it has to be um, Happy Cities because it's literally the book that, like, sent me to Columbia. Um, so that's, that's just this book. I always sort of, I have my copy of it tucked away like some sort of weird Bible um, <laughs> and it's all mushed up. And like, okay. I have to say, I do, okay, I'm going to be controversial and I'm going to go against it now. Okay. <laughs> I I initially read so many blogs and listened to so many... There was a Conscious conscious Chatter, I think, was one that I listened to a lot. Have you heard of that?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've heard of that one. I, I listened
0: to them a lot when I was starting the... When I was sort of trying to think how to do business and all that stuff. And I found that incredibly useful. And they had so many incredible insights. Mm-hmm. But I also found it quite overwhelming. and I found... I was, um, I'm very good at being indecisive. (laughs) So I was chopping and changing between strategies of how to be super sustainable and and really conscious and all of this ethical stuff. And the more I listened and the more I read, the more confused I got. Um, So I kind of got to a stage where I, I decided to kind of follow my gut more than anything. And rather than trying to kind of adhere to other people's standards. Um, It was very much about trying to do what I felt was best for the artisans and people I work with, rather than what is sort of popular opinion at the moment.
1: Because you were basing it also on your personal experience with them and the fact that you knew what issues they were facing.
0: Exactly. I sort of had these hundreds of hours of chat and interviews with all these amazing artisans. I think that's why I probably don't now, more than ever, don't sort of dive too deep into films and 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 things like that because it can be quite overwhelming and there's really something you're not doing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, and I think
1: the fact that it is so overwhelming is kind of the reason why I prefer telling stories like this because it's about one person's journey and one brand and the way that it's grown. obviously, there are a lot of bigger concept stories to tell as well but this way I think it's so easy to get stuck and lost with a million definitions and there's so many things that we all have to learn about sustainability as such but in your case I would say if you're going to a small town in northern Colombia and there's a grandma. Who is weaving a beautiful basket using a technique that she's been using for a hundred years then that it doesn't really get much more sustainable
0: than that I did remember some people i I definitely had I had more than anything I had sort of mentors um who guided me through and 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 challenged me. It's very important I found it very important to have devil's advocate. So, for example, when I said I was going to go and do all these amazing designs, they were like, well, you sure they want your designs? <laughs> I was like, good point. <laughs> so, there they, have been some incredible people along the way. Um, and that's been a huge, a huge, huge help. Mm-hmm. When I was out in Bogota, I was introduced to someone called Cynthia Lawson. It's called Parsons School of Design Deed Lab, and they, they investigate Working with artisans as a profession on an academic level. Oh, amazing. I think you'll find it really fascinating. And they've got a lot of questions on their page. For example, do artisans need additional capacities to be respected, treated, and paid as designers? Um, how might a commitment to transparency in companies who market artisan goods lead to better informed consumers and fairer wages for artisans?
1: Oh, and here's another one. Is cultural preservation a privileged posture? And how can it be a responsibility shared across various stakeholders? That
0: is a huge thing that I still deal with a lot. Is, you know when I'm saying, you know, I really want to encourage the children to do this. It's like, why do I have the right to say they should continue weaving if they want to be loyal? Yeah. Like, that's, that's not my right. Um, yeah so that's a a, a big question obviously I I don't actually say that to anyone but (laughs) I don't go up and go no 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 you're not going (laughs) to be a lawyer but I'm I'm encouraging but you you've that the whole point of encouraging is is offering something that is genuinely appealing and yeah and
1: And I think that's that's really what makes your way of thinking about this very unique because By presenting it in a way that's authentically something that one would feel proud of and aspire to. I mean, I don't know enough about this complexity at all, but I feel that this whole position of privilege can be used in a productive and positive way that's not condescending and that's not taking over because. You're attempting to do it in a way that is genuinely attractive. And it's not to say that somebody who wants to be a lawyer isn't going to go and be a lawyer, but you can maybe tickle out that desire to preserve these things while making it more modern. Yes. And you're the storyteller. And I think that's really what it's about. It's about telling authentic stories and enabling your customers to take part in that experience and to kind of dip into a world that they don't know otherwise and at the same time getting an absolutely beautiful product so with the placemats they're your best sellers then you have these stunning stunning big baskets that are wonderful to put plants in or even your newspapers or store all kinds of stuff. And then there are all the lovely handbags. I'm
0: hoping that over the next year or so, we can keep bringing out lots of new pieces and designs, and hopefully they'll be received well. Um, But it's it's really exciting. I mean, the wonderful thing is, is that there is no limit. There is, it's an endless journey that can keep changing and morphing as the world does basically. Which is really exciting. It's not, you know, one product that I'm going to sell the rest of my life. It can, it can, it can be anything and everything that that the artisans like and that and that people want to buy. That is really really cool.
1: Well, I'm very excited to be part of that journey in a way. <laughs> you are so part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Kate. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. This was so so good. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. you. Loads of love. Have such a nice day You too. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening in to our very first podcast episode of In Conscious Conversation. I, for one, feel like I have just traveled the world and experienced something completely new. It was such a pleasure talking to Kate and understanding of the difficulties and the challenges and also the incredible excitement about building one's own sustainable business and of course it's not without controversy there's that trade-off that generally has to be made between growth and sustainability there's this feeling that we can be faced by so many different ideas and standards in terms of sustainability that we can become totally overwhelmed and yet at least in my belief we need to start somewhere and working with artisans or working with other innovative materials or working with different types of people making sure that they're paid well all these are small steps that we can take on our sustainability journeys so thank you for listening in i'm so excited to also reveal to you my next guest for the coming episode which is another dear friend of mine founder of a incredible sustainable cashmere brand that is circular and carbon negative so stay tuned and please do visit the podcast app and subscribe that helps us um, improve in the rankings and give us a follow on Instagram as well at in underscore conscious conversation thank you and listen in soon